Thanks, Paul, for reading God's Word for us. Actually, um, next Sunday we get the opportunity to hear from Paul. He's going to be uh, opening God's Word for us, so I'm really excited for, for Paul to be doing that. I'm so glad that he's joined our, our team as a pastoral fellow here. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and just want to welcome each one of you here also. We're so glad that you're here. Um, one of the things that we as a church we're so passionate about is we don't want to just be a church that's in the city, that we want to be a church that's also for the city, and, and part of that is is that we love um, the culture uh, of, of Kansas City, and, and that's why we celebrate these jazz Sundays when there's a fifth Sunday, just to, to celebrate the, the goodness and the beauty of some of the, the culture and history of, of Kansas City. Um, in fact, John and some of the other team have recorded an album of jazz hymns as well, and I think there are copies of that album uh, at the guest table. So if you have not picked up one of those albums, um, they don't cost anything, uh, we'd love for you to have one. So if you don't have a Mosaic jazz album, we'd love for you to pick one up um, there at the table. Well, um, as we uh, get started here, we're second week into a new series uh, on um, asking this question, does it really matter? Does it really matter what we believe about God? Does it really matter what we believe um, about uh, kind of historic Christian faith? And so last week we did look at that question, does it really matter what we believe about God? And this week we're going to be asking, does it really matter what we believe about the Bible? Um, And as we do that on Fifth Sundays, we also have students and and, uh, elementary students in the service with us. So uh, elementary school students, if you haven't picked up one of these, the Kid Connect, um, you might want to grab one of these. We put this out every week. Uh, parents, just so you know this, even if your kids are downstairs, if you ever want them to join you in the service, uh, the Kid Connect uh, provides a way for them to engage with the sermon. So um, students, if you want to grab one of those and you haven't, um, I would encourage you to do that and we'll help you uh, kind of track along. Sometimes even adults like to use them as well. So um, as we look at uh, Psalm 19 together this morning, um, let's just pause and pray and ask for, for God's help in understanding his word together. Uh, Father, thank you for the gift of your word. And uh, I'm, I love this psalm and I, how it raises my affections and my imagination uh, for the goodness and the beauty Uh, of the Bible and this treasure that is your word. And and I pray that together as we um, meditate on the words that we have here in Psalm 19, that each one of our hearts would be um, maybe for the first time interested in God's word. If if we've been around and we've been exposed to the Bible, we'd have a renewed passion um, and a renewed sense of the beauty and the gift and the the truly the treasure that it is. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, has God ever spoken to you? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you unmistakably heard the voice of God? Well, this week I read an article from uh, a fairly well-known author, Christian author, pastor, and and many of you, if I were to say his name, would probably know, uh, would recognize the name. And and in this article, he, he claims that he heard God speak to him. And this is how the article begins. Let me just read to you the the first paragraph. He says, Let me tell you about a most wonderful experience I had early Monday morning, March 19th, 2007, a little after 6 o'clock. God actually spoke to me. There's no doubt it was God. I heard the words in my head just as clearly as a memory of a conversation passes across your consciousness. The words were in English, but they had about them an absolutely self-authenticating ring of truth. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God still speaks today. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I read something like that, I'm instantly skeptical. And I start thinking, really? (laughs) Did God really speak to you? Or or was this just a conversation between you and, and, and your thoughts? And there are all sorts of strange ideas about religion out there, right? The, the kind of the man upstairs or horoscopes or, or weird churches or encounters with God. So how do we know what is authentic and how do we know what's just absurd and off base? Well, well Christians have answered that question for centuries with this statement that, that we look to the Bible, as this norm that helps us understand what has God actually spoken. You see, the Bible isn't some kind of strange book of rules, although a lot of people will think of it in that way, but it really is God speaking to us, telling a story of what God has done, what he is doing, uh, what he's going to do. You see, the Bible matters because what God has actually said is better than anything that we can make up. The Bible makes such a difference in our lives because what what God has revealed in his word is is better than anything we can make up. And and this is vital because, like we said last week, wrong ideas about who God is, actually, they they wear us out, they exhaust us, they enslave us. And and there are times in our lives when we feel like we're we're in desperate need, and yet we don't know if we're going to be able to make it. We, We feel empty, and we don't know how to feel full. We feel like we're in danger and in need of protection. We, we feel lost and in need of direction. We feel sad and need joy. And again, for, for 2,000 years, Christians have turned to a book. They've turned to the Bible as the place to find hope and strength and comfort and truth. Why is this? It's because what God has said is better than anything we can make up. Now, you might hear, be, be here this morning, and you may have serious doubts uh, about the Bible, about it, whether it's reliable, about what it actually says. And if that's you, I'm so glad that you're here this morning, and, and I hope that, that what we, the conversation we have this morning and it helps you and has encouraged you in some way. Uh, or maybe you're here and you say, I believe God's Word. I mean, I believe the Bible is God's Word. I mean, I believe this book is, is God speaking to us, but to be honest, I just have a hard time getting into it. It's, I just, it's just not that interesting to me. I just I struggle to really sit down and read it. Or maybe you're coming in this morning and you feel guilty the moment we start talking about the Bible because you're like, oh, I know I'm supposed to be reading my Bible and I don't. And now, gosh, I'm just going to feel guilty all morning because I know I should be doing it and I tried and then it, I slept in and I didn't do it. And, and as a pastor, I spend a lot of time with this book. And even as someone who spends a lot of time with the Bible, those things that I just described, questions about can we really trust it, um, wondering is, there, is it really mean anything to me or is it just, is it just old and, and out of date, those are questions even as a pastor uh, that, that I wrestle with. So I hope you don't feel alone in those things this morning wherever you're at. And there's many mornings when I wake up and my email feels way more pressing than getting into this book. So, so you're not alone. And there are also times when I read this and I don't walk away thinking, wow, that changed my life. Sometimes I read it and I'm like, this is really good. And it was a discipline to the morning to sit down and read this, but, but I don't feel like a, a light from heaven opened up and I saw some brand new insight. 
So this morning, you know, we won't be able to, to raise, much less answer every question uh, that you or I might have about the Bible. But as we look at Psalm 19, what I hope we will be able to do is get a better sense of what the Bible is and why it matters so much. And, and so as we look at the second half of Psalm 19, those are really the, kind of the two big categories we're going to be looking at, the two big questions. What is the Bible? And then why does it matter so much? So what is the Bible? Why does it matter so much? Well, first, what is the Bible? And this is what we see in Psalm 19 in verses uh, 7 through 11. We're going to be focusing on the second half of the psalm this morning. The Bible is God speaking. And and Paul read all of Psalm 19 for us. And the psalms are a collection of songs of poetry that the people, that God's people, the people of Israel, and then the church later on used both individually in their worship as families and, and gathered together in corporal worship. This was the songbook, the hymnal of ancient Israel. And in the first part of the psalm, it celebrates how God reveals himself in, in the world that he has created. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And yet, it, what's interesting is it says they do so without speech, without words. And in the second half of the psalm, in verses 7 through 14, the psalmist rejoices that God has revealed himself in the Bible. And specifically here, the psalmist refers to the, the first five books of the Bible, which are, which are known as, as the Law or the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. But what he says of those first five books is true of the entire Bible as well. So what is the Bible? The Bible is God speaking to us. One of our other campus pastors, Christ Community is a, is a multi-site church, so we have four other, or four campuses around the city. One of our, our campus pastors who leads our downtown campus, Gabe Coyle, uh, he told a story this week that I just I had to share. When he was in seminary, um, he was buying their, a couch on Craigslist, and when he went to pick up the, the couch from the guy he was getting it from, they were talking, and the guy found out that Gabe was studying to be a pastor at, at seminary. And he said, oh, you're studying to be a pastor. I'm actually speaking at my church this, this Sunday. Um, and I don't know what kind of church or denomination it was, but he said, I'm speaking at my church on this Sunday. And he says, you know what, Gabe? I'm going to throw the Bible at the congregation and tell them I'm not going to let the Bible get in the way of God speaking to us this morning. Um, which Gabe was kind of, I don't think he quite knew how to respond to that. Um, but is the Bible something that gets in the way of God speaking to us? <laughs> or is it actually God speaking to us, the very means by which God reveals himself to us? See, what God has said is better than anything that we can make up. And what we see in verses 7 through 11 in this psalm is that the Bible is sight for the blind and joy for the sad. It's confidence for the doubting, and it's food for the hungry. In verses 7 and 8, we see that it's sight for the blind and joy for the sad. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Bible is sight for the blind. It enlightens our eyes. It it makes the simple, those who lack wisdom, when you study the book of Proverbs, there's the fool, there's the wise, and there's the simple. And the simple is the one who's in between being a wise and a fool. It could kind of go either point. And, And the Bible takes those who are simple and makes them wise. 
when you're in the dark, the tiniest bit of light changes everything. If I turn on my iPhone, my little flashlight here, I mean, it doesn't make much of a difference here in the room. But I tell you, if I have this little light on in the middle of the night looking under the crib for Lucy's pacifier, it makes all the difference in the world. The Bible enlightens our eyes. When we don't have wisdom, it shines brilliantly in our lives. Our statement of faith uses this language uh, in part to describe the Bible. It says it's the complete revelation of God's will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. The Bible gives us wisdom. It doesn't just give us information. Information tells us what is. Information can even tell us what, what possibly could be. But wisdom tells us what ought to be. It tells us what should be. It tells us what's best. But the Bible doesn't just address our minds. It also addresses our hearts Since the precepts are of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You see, the word of God gives joy to the sad because at its bright center is good news. At at the center of this book is good news that is joy for the sad. It's good news that death is not the final word over life. It's good news that real change in our lives is possible. It's good news that forgiveness is available. It's good news that brings with it great joy. And why is it that the Bible can be all these things? Well, you see it in verse 7 at the very beginning. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And that Hebrew word translated perfect, it's a really hard word to translate but because it, 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 it has such a large meaning. It means um, to be whole, complete, blameless, integral. You see, our broken, our fragmented lives are restored by the whole, complete, perfect, unfragmented word of God. Have you ever seen those pictures of land that has been just starved of rain and the ground is all dry and cracked and fragmented? Or, or if you get really dry skin, it's just cracked and painful. But as rain revives dry land, as lotion restores dry skin, the word of God revives our dry and cracked souls. It gives new life. And next we see in verse 9 that the Bible is also, it's confidence for the doubting. It says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I love how the, the New English translation of the Bible renders this verse. It says, the commands to fear the Lord are right and endure forever. And the judgments given by the Lord are trustworthy and altogether just. God's word, the Bible, it's, it's trustworthy. It's absolutely just. And most of us here, at some point in our lives, have probably had some doubts about the Bible, some, some question about can we really trust it or, or how do we read it correctly? I, most of us, I would, I would wonder at some point if we haven't. I know that I have. And so I just wanted to share a, a couple of things that have helped me. When, when I've come up against questions about can I really trust the Bible? 
Uh, that just three things that have helped me in those moments. Maybe they'll be helpful to you also. First, um, the, the thing that, that helps me is that remembering the, the inerrancy of the original manuscripts. So, so our statement of faith puts it this way. is the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in the original writings. So, so the affirmation of inerrancy in the original manuscripts, it's a theological affirmation rather than an evidentiary one in the first instance. Because obviously we don't have the original manuscripts any longer, but we have our copies of those manuscripts. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's an expression of God himself. So, so he is perfect and whole and complete and without error. That's who God is. And what he breathes out, the word of God, the scriptures, are also marked by those same things. But since we only have copies, not the originals, how do we know what we hold in our hands in our English Bibles is actually what God has spoken well, this leads us to the second thing that, that helps me, and that's the accuracy of, of modern translations. We live in an incredible time in history where we have access to more copies of manuscripts of the Bible than, than at any other point in history. They continue to discover in old libraries old copies of the Bible, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And the more manuscript copies we have, we can compare those together and understand um, where differences are and then discern what the actual readings of the text are. This discipline is called textual criticism. We also have more data now than ever on the original languages that the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew. And so we're able to produce better translations than at any point in history. And despite what scholars like Bart Ehrman would contend, the work of textual criticism can actually serve to give rather than undermine confidence in our English translations of the Bible. The Bible that, that you and I hold in our hands is highly accurate, it's highly reliable, and highly faithful to the originals. We can say with confidence that, that, that our English translations of the Bible are God's Word. And then finally, we have the art of sound interpretation. So there's, there's the original manuscripts, there's the, the accuracy of the translations, but also we have, have the art of sound biblical interpretation. God has gifted the church with, with pastors and scholars and teachers to, to help us understand sound principles of interpretation so that we don't end up just making the text say what we, we want it to say or, or whatever we think it says. And, and many of you may be wondering, so how do I do that better? I feel like I, I read my Bible, but I'm not sure. Am I really reading it correctly? Um, I just want to mention one book, uh, one resource on that. I, I think I have a picture of it here. Um, but it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. It's a great, really accessible resource. So if you're saying, I'd love to, to be better at interpreting my Bible, just reading it better. Um, how to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is, is a great volume. Okay, so, so the Bible is God's word. It's a fight for the blind. It, it's, it's joy for the brokenhearted, for the, for the sad. It, it gives confidence to the doubting. But it's also food for the starving. Look at verses 10 and 11. And the author goes on, More to be desired than they are gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So the author says that this book, that God's word, it's sweeter than honey. And then I think the question we have to say is, is really? <laughs> I mean, 
Is this really that good? Is it really more precious than gold? I mean, if, if someone were to come up to you and say, here is a billion dollars worth of gold. All, it's, it's all yours if you just don't ever read the Bible again. Is that a fair trade in our, in our mind? And probably most of us say, well, no, I, you know, I wouldn't take that. I, I'm in church, so I'd say, no, I would take the Bible. Um, but it's hard in everyday life to really see the book as that precious, isn't it? I mean, it's hard for me. And I think part of it is, is in the United States, we have so much access to it. So, I mean, I have on my phone, I can go on the internet. I've got however many copies of the Bible. And, and there's bunches of copies in, in just in this room. So it's hard to see it as the treasure that it is sometimes. And some of us make an effort, right? We try to say, I want to see this as valuable, and I'll even want to get up early to, to read it. But I know many of us, and myself included, have often found that getting up early uh, to read the Bible is a great way to go back to sleep um, in the morning. And we've all read the Bible, and we haven't understood it at times, right? And so, so when we look at this, we say, oh, is, this, is this really more precious than gold? Is it really as sweet as honey? Sweeter, in fact, than honey. Maybe we say, I know this is, this is one way I hear God, but, but isn't the Bible really just one of a lot of ways that God speaks to us? You might say, Bill, I mean, I, I hear God when I'm, when I'm in nature, in, in music, and in good conversation. If I go to the Kauffman Center, I, I'm, at, I'm at the Blue Room, I've experienced God there. And in fact, sometimes those moments seem more real to me than any time I've been reading my Bible. And I would say, me too. I love going to the Kauffman Center or watching a great film, hearing great jazz played. And, and I do experience God's beauty and his creation in those moments. But what gives them meaning is that if they accurately reflect God, reflect God in his word, what, what makes art good is does it tell the truth about reality in all of its brokenness and its beauty? You see, to know the Bible well gives those things more meaning, not less. The, the law of the Lord, is, it's perfect, it's whole, it's complete, it's blameless. And, and that's actually precisely, I think, why it's so hard for us to grasp sometimes. It's, it's rich food. It's a feast that takes time. But we're starving and we just need a quick fix so many times. We feel like, I just needed something quick. And so when we come to the Bible, this, this rich feast that we have to sit down at the table and it's multiple courses and it's not fast food, it, it's just hard for us to get into it at times. The reason that we're starving is that we haven't filled ourselves with things that truly satisfy. In fact, so many of the things that we, we desire actually make us hungry rather than fill us up. But in the Bible, God is speaking He's offering you a feast. There is a feast for you laid in these pages. It's more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So that's what the Bible is. It's sight for the blind. It's, it's confidence for the doubting. It's food for the starving. But, but here's the question, and we're forcing ourselves all summer long to ask this question, but how, what difference does that really make tomorrow? I'm going to go to work, I'm going to go to camp, I'm going to 
go to whatever you do on Monday morning, what difference does this really make in my life? And I think there, there are three things that come out in, in verses 12 through 14 that, that help us answer the question, does it really matter? Does all this glorious truth about what the Bible is and how God is speaking, in, how does it really matter? We see three things in verses 12 through 14. First, I think it matters because it frees us from blind spots and cultural biases. The, the Bible matters because it frees us from blind spots and, and cultural biases that we have. So how does it do this? Well, well, the Bible often goes to the heart, the answer to this question often goes to the heart of why we find the Bible so offensive. Because, I mean, I think if we're, if we're honest, we could have started there, that many of us, there are things in the Bible that we read and we're like, I just don't know if I can get on board with that. But the reality is every one of us is a product of our culture. It's, it's not a bad thing, but we just, we were, we were born at a certain time in a certain place. And, and as a result, our thinking is shaped by that. Our, our lives, our, um, the way that we, we live is, can, is shaped by the culture in which we live. And, and as a result, we know, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we know we have cultural biases, that we're limited because we live at this time in this place and not at another time in another place. So how do we escape our biases? If we really want to be thoughtful people, we, we know that, that we have these cultural kind of captivity things that happen just because of where we were born and, and where we live. So how do we escape those biases? None of us wants to be prejudiced. None of us wants to be narrow. But because we're embedded in culture, we, we know we have those places. We know we have those blind spots. So how do we escape them? Well, look at verse, verse 12. It says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. You see, the psalmist admits, he says, I've got errors. I, I know I do, but, but how can I know what they are, right? If, if, if you knew you were making the mistake, you, you wouldn't, you would know, you wouldn't make it. Blind spots are blind spots for a reason. We can't see them, right? If, if we knew we had blind spots, we, they wouldn't be there. By definition, we need something or someone else to show us our blind spots, Right? A blind spot wouldn't be a blind spot if we, if we knew about it. I read an article this week by uh, Columbia Business School professor uh, Heidi Grant Halverson, and she was writing for the Harvard Business Review, and, and she makes this telling observation in her article. The article is called, You're Probably Wrong About You. And she writes this. She says, Who write, who's right? Who knows best? Well, when the, the research suggests that they do. She says, other people's assessment of your personality predicts your behavior on average much better than your own assessment does. The truth is, she says, that we don't know ourselves nearly as well as we think we do. When it comes to our performance, our surprising self-ignorance makes understanding where we went right and where we went wrong difficult to say the least. We need something outside of ourselves to help us evaluate and understand ourselves. And we need this not just as individuals, we certainly need it there, but we, even as whole cultures, we, we need something outside of us to help us understand where we're going right and where we're going wrong. And the Bible's uniquely positioned to do this because it's not written from a single culture. <laughs> Therefore, it offends and also affirms every culture. So, for example, we are often in the, in the West, in 21st century Western countries, we're often deeply offended um, by the Bible's view of, of sexual ethics, for example. But if you go to more traditional cultures, they have no problem with the Bible's perspective on sexual ethics. 
However, more traditional cultures, for instance, especially honor and shame-based cultures, they have massive difficulty with the very thing that we love so much about the Bible, and that's forgiveness and grace. So especially in in many Eastern traditional cultures that that are at honor, shame-based culture, the idea of forgiveness and of grace is, is just as untenable to them as we often find the Bible's perspective on, on sexual ethics. And, and this is actually exactly what we would expect to find if the Bible wasn't just a product of a particular culture, but was really God speaking into all cultures at all times. We would find that it both affirms as well as offends every culture. And this is vital because in order to have a real relationship with God, he has to be able to tell us things we, we don't want to hear. And sometimes our posture to the Bible is that, that we sort of stand over it in judgment, but we have to be willing to, to stand under it, to let it, because if we are always standing over it, God can never tell you anything you don't want to hear. <laughs> I mean, have you ever met people who God agrees with them on everything? It's so frustrating, right? They, 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 the, 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 God seems to just agree with them about everything. And, and then you end up with a self-serving spirituality. I, I mean, when you know people like that, their God is really only just a bigger version of themselves. And they inevitably are, are deaf to other people. Um, they're never wrong, and they can never be contradicted. I mean, if God's on your side and, he, and you're, he always agrees with you, then, then it's kind of the end of any kind of conversation, Right? And this problem plagues um, traditionalists and conservatives uh, just as much as it prog- pro- uh, plagues uh, progressives and, and liberals. All of us need the gospel, which, which offends as well as affirms. You see, the Bible makes you a listener. It makes you long for what God has said, not what you have to say. Because again, after all, what, what God has said is better than anything that we can make up. So the Bible frees us from our cultural biases. Second, the Bible also matters because it frees us from enslavement to sin. Notice the language of dominion, of enslavement in verse 13. The, the author says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Let them not have dominion over me. Presumptuous sins are sins that we, knew, that we do knowingly, consciously, those things that we know are wrong. <laughs> And, and yet we continue to do them. That's what the author means by presumptuous sins. And they, they, what happens when we become accustomed to repeatedly ignoring God and, and our, our sins begin to have dominion over us, they begin to rule over us, they begin to, to take control away from us. But as God reminded Cain, and if you know uh, Genesis, if you're less familiar with that story, and Cain is the one who murders his brother Abel, right, out of envy and hate in the first chapters of Genesis, God reminds Cain in the very beginning of the Bible, he says, sin is crouching at the door. He says, it's desires for you, but you must rule over it. It's the same word, rule over it, as, as have dominion over you here in Psalm 19. Sin wants to rule over us, but we must rule over it. And God's word is vital in ruling over sin because we will never ignore sin and obey God. Uh, We will only do that. We will only ignore sin. We will only obey God to the extent that we know God and his love for us. 
the, the great lie that's at the heart of, of the falls that God doesn't know what's best for you, that he doesn't care for you, that, that we know better. And, and so you have a view of God that says he really is the best, that he knows me completely, that he loves me fully. We, we will never ignore sin because the promise that it makes is so much more enticing in the moment. The great American philosopher and, and preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote in his book, Religious Affections, he says, men will trust God no further than they can know him. Men will trust in God no further than they know him. They cannot exercise faith in him one ace further than they have sight of his fullness and faithfulness. Friends, the pages of this book are dripping with the fullness and the faithfulness of God. Soak yourself in them. Saturate yourself with the truth of God's fullness and his faithfulness. It's here in this book. So so the Bible matters because it it frees us from our blind spots and it frees us from enslavement to sin. But it, it doesn't just free us from something, it also frees us to something. It frees us to be whole. It frees us to be who we were created to be. Look at, um, if you look at verse 7 again, this is actually, if you back up in verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, if you go down to verse 13, it says, again, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, and I'll have dominion over you or over me. And then in the second half of verse 13, it says, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. That word blameless is the exact same word as perfect up in verse 7. So when he says the law of the Lord is perfect, and then it says I shall be blameless, perfect and blameless, the exact same word. You see, God's whole, complete, integral, blameless word transforms us. And, and over time, by the work of the Spirit, it transforms us into whole, complete, blameless, integral people. In other words, God's people actually begin to look like God's Word. God's Word is perfect, it's whole, it's complete. And the more that we study it, the more that we bring it into our lives, the more whole, complete we become. His Word affects every aspect of our lives. And we could be here all morning talking about the the myriad of ways that that happens. I'm just going to give you two examples, really quick examples. First it, first, it transforms our relationships. The word, God's written word, actually transforms our words. In relationships, our words are the most powerful tools, either for healing or for destruction. If you've ever had a relationship with a brother, a sister, a friend, a spouse, a parent, you know that words can be things that heal or they can absolutely ruin and destroy I love the Civil War song, um, Poison and Wine. It captures that reality with such evocative emotion. It says, your mouth is poison, your mouth is wine. How true is that often in our relationships, that, that our mouths are simultaneously poison that can kill as well as wine that gives life and joy. But you see, the more that you get this book into you, the more it transforms what comes out of you. It affects our relationships, but, but it also affects our work. This book, it, it affects our, our work, our, our work that we do Monday through Saturday. Whether your work is inside the home or out, whether it's paid or unpaid, I can guarantee you that the, the greatest thing lacking in most of your vocations is not more information 
And whether that vocation is parenting or engineering or, or medicine or business or, or whatever the work that you're in, I can almost guarantee that what's lacking most in your vocation is not more information, right? We, we live in the information age. Google exists. Uh, it's not hard to get information for the most part. But what we really need, what, what your workplace needs, is not more information, but more wisdom. What your work needs is, is people who are truly wise, who have, who have principles to, to guide them into making good decisions, who can take the information and know what, what should we do about this information that we have. It's not just that we need more information. We need true wisdom. And this, this book, this Bible that we've been given is a book that's full of wisdom and the promise in the Psalms that it makes the simple wise. God's word, his whole word, makes his people whole, complete, lacking in nothing. And this is another reason why, and it maybe seems tangential, but how it affects other aspects of our lives is, is many of you um, are aware that we are involved at Satchel Page Elementary School in part of the Mayor's Turn the Page program, which helps um, students to, to uh, become more proficient in their reading. And there's lots of reasons, right, why it's important to, to be able to read well. A myriad of reasons for employment, for, for just a, a living a full life. But have you, have you ever thought about that, that if you can't read well, that the treasures of this book are, are always closed off to you to a certain extent? Our sister church, um, Christian Fellowship Baptist Church over uh, at 45th and Truist, Stan Archie, talks about the, that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, but if you don't have a hand to wield that sword, that it, it, it just is going to lay there. And he says literacy is, is that the hand that can pick up the sword in, in, of the Spirit and use it. So this is part of the reason that we're so passionate about being involved in Turn the Page is giving students the ability to read actually allows them at some point in their lives to be able to open the treasures of God's Word for themselves. We are in desperate need of God to speak to us. And He has spoken to us. You remember that paragraph that I read at the very beginning? Um... That was written by pastor and author uh, John Piper. But it, but it didn't, in fact, actually describe some extraordinary special extra word of God. Because if you go on and read the article, you'll discover that, that Piper is describing the experience of reading his Bible. Listen to what he writes later on in the article. He says, And best of all, this experience is available to all of you. If you would like to hear the very same words I heard on that couch in northern Minnesota, he says, Read Psalm 66, 5 through 7. That's where I heard them. And this is, I love the language that he uses next. He says, oh, how precious the Bible. It's the very word of God. It speaks in the 21st century. It is the very voice of God. And by this voice, he speaks with absolute truth and personal force. By this voice, he reveals his all-surpassing beauty. By this voice, he reveals the deepest secrets of our hearts. He says, no voice anywhere, anytime can reach as deep or lift as high or carry as far the voice of God that we hear in the Bible. So how do we read this book in which God speaks to us? We need to read it rightly. We need to read it regularly and relationally. Reading it rightly seems, means just simply seeking to understand what it actually says. Not, not what we want it to say, not what we think it says, but really doing the hard work. Saying, what does this book actually say? 
reading it regularly means just, just making a habit, making it a routine where you're regularly putting this book in front of you. And reading it relationally means reading it in relationship with other Christians, right? Because we, we need other people to help us understand. So reading it in relationally means reading it with other Christians. But even more importantly, don't miss this. Reading it relationship means reading it for relationship with Jesus. We need to read it in relationship with other Christians, but we need to read it for relationship with Jesus. Because if you look at verse 14, it says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, the Bible, God's written word, always points us to our rock and our redeemer, Jesus, the living word. In ancient Israel, a rock was a place of refuge and safety in the wilderness. It meant shade from the sun. It was a hiding place from one's enemies. It was often the source of a spring in a dry and arid place. And Jesus is our rock and our redeemer. He is all of those things for us. And yet it is possible to read the Bible and miss Jesus. It's possible to read the Bible and miss Jesus. In fact, in the book of John, Jesus is talking to the Bible scholars of his day. I mean, these were the guys who knew the Bible the best. And he says something that's so sobering to me as a pastor. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because that you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You've heard me say it before, and you're going to hear me say it many, many times again. The Bible is not primarily a book about you and what you should be doing. It's a book about God and what he has done in Jesus Christ on the the cross to restore us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to set all things right again. This book is only life for you if it leads you to hide yourself in Jesus, your rock and your redeemer. The hymn writer puts it this way. He says, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you, he has said, than to you unto Jesus for refuge have fled. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Jesus is your rock and your redeemer. Let the Bible point you to him always. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the treasure of your word. And and I will say right now, I don't treasure it as I ought. Help us, Lord, as a congregation, as a church, to treasure your word, to see it for the precious thing that it is. Help us to be, just saturate ourselves in it. Not just so we have more Bible information, but so that we see Jesus and we're transformed by him. We pray this in his name, for his glory. Amen. Well, the written word does always point us to the living word. And in communion, which we celebrate each week here at the Brookside campus, we celebrate the living word Jesus who died on the cross and rose again for us. We hear the gospel proclaimed to us in God's word, the Bible. It's proclaimed to our senses in communion. We are given a meal, a feast, in which we taste and touch the good news of the gospel. Maybe this morning as well, as, as Paul mentioned, you're, you're here and you're listening and, and you're thinking, man, there's some things I just really need to, to, to work out. I, I don't know if I trust the Bible, but I want to. Or 
and I just need someone to pray with me. We're going to have people near the sound booth here. We'd love to do that with you during communion. And if you're newer here, let me just explain how we, how we do communion. There's four stations around the room, two here in the front and two in the back. Um, and when you gather, we gather in groups around the table. So gather in a group of four or five, take the bread, dip it into the cup, and then partake together. If you haven't embraced Jesus yet, if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure if I buy all this. Um, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to, to participate in a meal like communion. I'm not sure what that means. Again, we're so glad that you're here and just invite you to use this time um, as a place to reflect. Just even to ask, God, would reveal yourself to me in your word. Help me to understand who you are, if you're real. And as you come uh, to the table, there's also gluten-free communion almonds um, available at this station in the back um, if you need that. Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after blessing it, took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. The living word is broken for each one of us. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has called us to do this in remembrance of him. So come now to the table when you're ready and taste and touch the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name.